Good morning, First Baptist. So some congratulations are in order to both Bighorn and to Sheridan, taking the state titles yesterday in football. Thank you. Uh, congratulations are also in order for the cross-country team. I was reminded in the first service that I did not congratulate the girls' tennis team, so congratulations, Sheridan girls' tennis team. And congratulations, band, and whomever else I may have missed. Way to go. I said in the first service again, I think this is the winningest place I've ever lived in in my entire life. I'm hoping it rubs off on me. <laughs> so good morning. Glad you're here. Uh, there was a five-week-old baby girl that made it into the nation's press named Jessica Ann Lieberger. She had come down with pneumonia, and um, her father, John, was described in the press as a fundamentalist preacher he prayed for his daughter, and he believed that by praying for her that she was going to get better. So in praying for her, he made the decision that he was not going to take her to the hospital. And unfortunately, she died. He ended up being charged with manslaughter as a, as a result of that. He went before the judge, and the judge in the case felt that justice would not be served by putting Mr. Lieberger in prison. He had five other children. From all reports, he was really a, a good dad. So he was sentenced to five years probation, during which time he had to do community service. He had to serve uh, in a hospital across the street from him as an orderly. As a matter of fact, that happened just south of here in Estes Park, Colorado. When the trial was over, a reporter stopped him and asked him what he thought about the verdict. And this was his response. Well, God is my judge and I'm going to give an account to him. And in that sense, he's right. Like all of us, someday, he's going to stand in the judgment of God. What do you think God's verdict is going to be? See, the world is full of people who have lots and lots of faith but have a pretty shallow theology. Last week I talked about two dangerous extremes. I talked about an extreme over here where you may get lots and lots of head knowledge about God. You may study the scriptures and study and study, but in doing that you can actually miss God altogether. And the case that I spoke about, one of my Greek professors found that he had so turned God into an academic object that he was missing the feeling and the experience of him. Now you've got another extreme over here where you do have a group of people that are going to say, if you don't have supercharged emotional experiences of God, you don't know him at all. As a matter of fact, you may not even be a believer. Both are extremes. Both are dangerous to our spiritual life. And today I want to focus more over here. And I want to focus more on this danger of leaning too far into the need for the emotional experience of God. And you can sum it up like this. What is the danger of having deep faith but shallow theology? What's the danger of having deep faith and shallow theology. 
The text I want to talk about today comes in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to start out looking at the first four, chap- the first four verses rather, of Hebrews. Uh, we're starting a new series today on that. And if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name as he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You may be seated. So this morning we're kicking off this new series on the book of Hebrews. And you can kind of sum up the message of Hebrews in these three words. Don't stop believing. You're singing the song in your head, aren't you? Yeah, you can hear it. It's very hard not to sing. I'm going to save you from me singing that. But it is this message of an enduring faith. Uh, And I want to look at it. This morning, the passage and the introduction of the book, we'll start out talking, well, when and why was the book of Hebrews written? And then we'll see at the beginning, these, uh, in the beginning of chapter 1, these two main movements in the first four verses. First, that God has spoken. We'll see that he has spoken to us through his son. And then secondly, we could be clear about the person, work, and status of Christ. As a matter of fact, we need to make those beliefs part of a daily habit. So I want to first introduce the book of Hebrews. And one of the unique aspects of Hebrews is that nobody really knows who wrote the book. Uh, A lot of people believe it was Paul. There's reasons to think it was Paul uh, because the early church, many thought it was Paul. A lot of the arguments in the book of Hebrews were similar to the arguments that Paul was making in his other epistles. But they don't really know exactly who wrote it. Now, they have some idea of the time frame. There's uh, a, lot of, a lot of discussion in the book about persecution that seems like it's about to come. Now, that coincides with the Emperor Nero. Uh, whenever Nero comes on the scene, he's going to intensify. As a matter of fact, persecution against Christians is going to crescendo because the town of Rome, the, the city of Rome is going to burn, and Nero is going to blame the Christians for that. You may have heard the phrase that Nero played his fiddle while Rome burned. Some have even thought that Nero may have started the fire himself, that he used that as a means to bring persecution on these Christians. Now, that still doesn't really indicate to us who wrote the book. Again, it could have been Paul. It could have been someone else. But everyone in the early church understood Hebrews to be fully inspired by God. So they adopted it into the canon. So the audience to whom the book was written uh, was Jewish. You can tell by the way the book reads. All through the book, there's these allusions to Old Testament Testament sacrifices, Old Testament ritual. Uh, The priests of the Old Testament, as a matter of fact, one of the opening arguments that the writer of Hebrews is going to make is that Christ is superior to the angels. That's because there was such a high view of the angels among the Jews. 
And you can imagine, all through the Old Testament, we see the angels delivering messages and the angels doing a lot of different kinds of work. So the argument had to be made that Christ is higher than the angels. And then beyond that, uh, there's the, the spiritual condition of those who are among these early Jewish Christians. And moving on, um, in the first, uh, the first couple of verses, I'm sorry, I'm going backwards. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 and 13, um, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, this is the writer encouraging the listener, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Now, this is speaking to Jews who needed to abandon Judaism in order to go to Christ. He's, he's speaking here of Christ's crucifixion outside the gates of Jerusalem. And he's saying we need to also go out and join Christ in his suffering and leave behind this old way of doing things, this old way of Jewishness and Judaism. So all of this speaks to the spiritual condition of the people to whom this was written. Uh, there's a lot of problems that come up in the book. There's these warning passages, and several passages where the writer is warning against something called apostasy. And that word literally means falling away. And there's been a lot of discussion, well, what, what's he talking about here? And uh, it comes up, for example, in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So the writer is encouraging endurance in the faith. Again, don't stop believing. I want to say at the outset that I do not believe people lose their salvation. That always comes up in the context of studying the, the book of Hebrews, and we'll go through passages that you'll see about that. But I always like to interpret the obscure in light of the clear. And I want to go to 1 John 2.19 for just a moment. It says there, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Now, this is uh, the writer talking about seemingly Christians who had left and, and weren't following Christ anymore. It says they went out from us, as, but they did not really belong to us. Because if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But they went out from us to demonstrate that all of them do not belong to us. There's a visible church and an invisible church on any given Sunday morning. There's those who show up and who are here. And I pray and hope that everybody here is a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. But then there's those who God knows are followers of him. And oftentimes, those who are not will fall away. They'll not stay with us because they were never part of us. So there's an emphasis in Hebrews on the human responsibility of belief. One of the toughest parts of Christianity, it can put your brain in knots, is on one hand, yes, you've got the sovereignty of God, that he draws people to himself. But on the other side, and you see this all through the book of John, and it comes up here in Hebrews, is you've got the responsibility that we have of belief. And both are true. In Hebrews, there's a lot of emphasis put on our responsibility of belief and growing to maturity. So that's an overview. That's an 80,000-foot view of the book of Hebrews. 
And I want to go into this first part now. And you look, we look in these first four verses. I read them already. I want to go back to um, verse 1 and read through the first part of, um, of verse 2. It says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son. Now I want to go back to the beginning there. It, it's, it says long ago. Now, clearly we see here at the beginning that God has spoken. But let's go back and look and see what he means about this idea of, of long ago. We've got these, these time frames. We've got long ago, and we've got these last days. Now, long ago is talking about the time of the Old Testament, the time of the prophets. See, there's this 400-year gap between the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, and when John the Baptist starts to speak up. All of a sudden, we've got a prophet again, and the Lord is speaking. But that long gap is referred to as the silent years, and all through that intertestamental period. Uh, if you've ever read about that, there's the rise and fall of empires and generals and kings, and the whole time the rabbis are questioning God. When are you coming back to us? When are we going to hear from you again? Then the text speaks of the manner of the divine revelation. So you've got long ago, and you've got the last days, but the text speaks this, this manner of the divine revelation. It says it was at many times. That is to say that the Word of God didn't just come all at once in one big package, did it? Um, I once heard of a story of a, a new preacher who was at a church. He'd just gotten out of seminary, and this was, uh, I think it was, it was in Oklahoma, I believe, and Every now and then they get a bad winter, and it was a, one of those mornings where they, they had a big snow, and only one guy showed up. And the new seminary graduate pastor gets up there into the pulpit, and he sees his congregation of one. But he decides he's going to deliver his entire sermon. And he did. And at the end of the sermon, he went to the back of the church to greet the man and, and say goodbye to the guy as he was leaving. And this was an old farmer. And he looked at the young pastor and said, well, that was, a good, that was a good sermon, preacher. The pastor said, well, thank you. But he said, you know, when I've only got one cow that shows up in my field, I don't drop off all my hay bales. <laughs> God didn't drop off all his hay bales right in the beginning. You get a progressive dropping of the hay bales. He speaks all through the Old Testament, through the prophets, over a long period of time. And the mystery of Christ becomes, it gets slowly and slowly, it's more and more clear as you go through. And that pro, they call that progressive revelation of God. So, um, and then it says in various ways. It was in many times and in, in many ways. And if you go again through the Old Testament, you see all these different kinds of revelations. Uh, you, you see stories and visions and dreams and mighty acts and God speaks from mountaintops through thunder and clouds. And then at times he speaks in a still, small voice. But he speaks through various times. He speaks through various ways. And then there's a shift. It says, God has spoken to us in these last days through his Son. And this, that phrase, the last days, often comes up uh, in the Word of God. And it's oftentimes we think, well, we're here in 2020. We're 2,000 years removed from all these things happening. Surely now we're in the last days. By the way, they thought that a thousand years ago as well. 
But it's the time period we're living in on this side of the resurrection that constitutes what the Bible calls the last days. Uh, we're living in the time between Christ's two comings. He came once. He, he ascended back into heaven. He's going to come again. He's going to come back to earth. But that's what the last days are. And that's, that's where we are. And then how did he speak to us? It says he spoke through his son. Now, what does that mean exactly? That he spoke to us through his son. And I love the way one commentator puts this. His name is Pink. He says, God might have spoken almighty wise as he did at Sinai. By the way, I, part of me would love to have been there to see that display of God's power. But then I think maybe I wouldn't. But that would have terrified and overwhelmed us. God might have spoken judge wise as he will in the future at the great white throne. But that would have condemned us and forever banished us from his presence. But blessed be his name, he has spoken sunwise in the tenderest relation which he could, have, which he could possibly assume. There was no more loving, more kind way that God could have spoken to us than the way he did through his son, through his sacrifice, uh, through his words, but not just his words, but through his deeds. And how all the acts of Jesus Christ changed the Old Testament program. They were having to keep all of these laws, but then God summed up all the laws and said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the Holy Spirit is going to be the one that enables us to do this. So Christ changed the program, and God spoke through his Son. See, first things are not always the best things. I've spoken about my very first date. It was so awful I didn't know if I ever wanted to go on one again. Uh, the first time I tried to dribble a basketball, it was, it was pathetic. First time I went skiing, it was really hard to do. The first time I went ice skating, I was falling all over the place. The first meal you ever cooked probably didn't turn out that great. My first sermon was a wreck. My brother told me so. <laughs> so first things are not always the best things. In the book of Hebrews, we see that the first things, and the argument that he's making is that the first things were not the best things. The first priesthood, the first sacrifice were all good in their time, but none of them were perfect. The second thing was the best, specifically Christ. He was the better revelation, the better high priest, and the perfect sacrifice. So see, this is God's word to us. It's the truth that never changes, and it must trump how we feel about things. If you've ever struggled with whether or not God really loves you, hang on to this truth. If you're going through a really rotten time and you're wondering if God has thought, forgotten about you, He hasn't. But see, if we trust our feelings and our experience over the Word of God, we're going to land in a really bad place. There's always a danger in looking at subjective feelings and experiences as being the primary source of God's revelation. I am not saying that we don't have experiences of God. I am not saying that, that somehow we practice a Christianity that is void of feeling, but those are not our primary sources of revelation. And we have a culture that's telling us that you can have 
a spirituality of some kind completely void of God. As a matter of fact, there was an article that came out in the New York Times about a woman named Elizabeth Gilbert. Uh, she, was a, she was described as a leading representative pilgrim, religious pilgrim, what that religious pilgrim now looks like in our post-Christian age. She, she had this great job. She was a travel writer. She had a big uh, apartment in Manhattan. Her and her husband had a big house in the Hudson Valley. They were, they were talking about having kids. But all of a sudden, she wasn't sure she wanted those things. And she describes herself as sitting in the bathroom at 3 a.m., sobbing her eyes out. And she decides to do something that, that she hadn't really ever done before. She wanted to pray. She didn't know to who. She didn't know what to say. She simply said, I don't want to be married anymore. I don't want to live in this big house. And I don't want to have this baby. At long last, she says that someone spoke back. She says that it was not an Old Testament Hollywood Charlton Heston voice, nor was it a voice telling me that I must build a baseball field in my backyard. It was merely my own voice, speaking from within my own self. And yet, this was my voice as I had never heard it before. This was my voice, but perfectly wise. Notice she says perfectly wise, calm, and compassionate. This is what my voice would sound like if I'd only ever experienced love and certainty in my life. How can I describe the warmth of, of affection in that voice as it gave me the answer that would forever seal my faith in the divine? She ended up leaving it all. She left her, her house. She left her husband. And she recorded this all in a book called Eat, Pray, Love. As a matter of fact, they made a movie about that. And uh, the writer of this article in the New York Times says that the message of her book, Eat, Pray, Love, is the same gospel. I've got this on up here. Uh, the message of Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love is the same gospel preached by a cavalcade of contemporary gurus, preachers, and would-be holy men and women. Do that the writer of the article, calls it the religion of God within. And it's best summed up by Gilbert herself when she writes, God dwells within you as you yourself, exactly the way you are. Somewhere within us all, there does exist a supreme self who is eternally at peace. According to Gilbert, her highest duty is to honor the divinity that resides within me. See, her story only highlights our need for a source of truth outside ourselves. That's not subjective. That is the Word of God. He gave us truth about Himself, so we weren't relying on some kind of divinity within, some kind of perfect voice, because those things easily lead us astray. All our thoughts have to be tested by Scripture. So trust the Word of God, uh, His own Son, over whatever your feelings may be telling you. I want to go back to the text now. I want to look at the second part of verse 2 uh, through verse 4. Because here the writer makes it clear that in regard to the person, work, and status of Christ, 
that he started a new program. Uh, who he was, what he did, and where he is. And we start now in the second part of verse 2. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is speaking of God the Father. He, referring to Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, there's seven things here that the text tells us about Christ. Uh, first of all, it says he's the heir of all things. Now, when you say heir, you're talking about someone that's going to ultimately receive everything. It speaks about this in Psalm 2.8. And while Jesus Christ is presently in authority over all things, in the future and in some kind of a different way, God's going to subject everything to him. And then secondly, um, Christ is the one through whom also he created the world. And that literally means... Uh, through the ages. See, not only did God through Christ create all things physically, he also created the time through which those things were going to move. Time, space, the physical universe. The Son was God's agent in the creation of all those things. And by the way, this was true of Christ even when he was in the arms of Mary, unable to feed himself, and incapable of taking care of himself. It was just as true at that moment as it is when this is being written. Third, it says that he's the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus revealed the glory of God in a veiled way, as it says in Philippians 2, becoming a man. He was revealing the Lord. And then third, it says, I'm sorry, fourth, he's the exact imprint of his nature. That's the same word they would use to describe the impression of the Caesar uh, on Roman coins at the time, that when he came, he was revealing the nature of God himself through his deeds, through his words, through his earthly ministry. Fifth, it says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Um, it's this idea of carrying. Not that Christ was carrying the world on his back the way Atlas does but rather that he was taking everything, and he is taking everything to its predetermined end, that he's controlling the times, and he knows when the end is going to be. Second, I'm sorry, uh, next, after making purification for sins. And this is a big emphasis in the book of Hebrews. Uh, and this thrust of purification, it, it suits the book of Hebrews. You know, in Romans, it speaks to are being justified before God. It speaks to our new legal standing before God. It speaks to our being made more like Christ. And there's these long lists of sins uh, in the book of Romans, but you don't find those in the book of Hebrews. The focus is on this main sin of unbelief. This main sin of thinking, this Christianity thing is not working, I need to go back to Judaism. And then finally, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This was the place of honor. This is like if you were to show up at a big dinner and the head honcho there seated at the head of the table said, I want you to come and sit here beside me. 
This is an indication of the honor of Christ. He had the choice place of honor and authority in relation to God the Father. And then in verse 4, he introduces this new idea. You can see it there. Um, talking about his superiority to angels. Uh, this is a big deal because the Jews had a very high view of the angels. He's going to unpack this in the next set of verses, 5 through 14. But needless to say, it was necessary because of who he was talking to, these Jewish Christians, to say that Jesus is higher than the angels. If, in case there's any doubt, know that he's higher than the angels. So from the end of verse 2 through verse 4, we get this boatload of theological truth about Jesus. Now, why is that? Why was it necessary to give all these truths about Jesus here at the beginning of the book of Hebrews? It's because right belief about God is foundational to being able to live the Christian life. You know, we teach a lot of classes here about Christian living. Um, how to be a, a good spouse, um, how to be a good parent, uh, how to be a good friend. I talk about these things. As a matter of fact, I believe that part of my job as a pastor is to give concrete and relevant ways to apply the Word of God to your life. However, all of that, all the quote-unquote good advice has got to be come back and be rooted into rock-solid doctrine about who God is. That's why I spent the last several weeks unpacking that question. Who is God? Because how you answer that is going to control how you, how you do life. As a matter of fact, when you use the word theology right now, you can almost see people start to pass out. Uh, it's just something that's not of interest. But that is not the way it always was. As a matter of fact, the Puritans considered theology as the art of living unto God. Who are we worshiping on any given Sunday? Who do we know Him to be? We always have to compare who we think we know God to be to who the Scriptures are telling us that He is. That's why at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, He's starting with who Christ is. Now just imagine for a moment, and by the way, pastors have to have a solid theology. Now, there's a lot of pastors out there, and I pray I never become one of them, that will just bring in the congregation and say, well, it's kind of my job just to make you feel good right now. Now, imagine a doctor like this, okay? So you show up at the doctor's office. You tell them you've got a really sharp pain in your stomach. And the doctor looks at you and says, well, I'm not really into all that medicine stuff. Uh, tell you what, we'll just cut you open and see what's going on inside there. Now, how would you feel about that? You wouldn't go to that doctor. It's not the, job to, the doctor's job to just have a good bedside manner. He's there because he knows medicine, because he knows how to apply it. What do you think about our friend, John Lieberger, that I mentioned at the beginning? Now, certainly I believe that, um, that we'll see him in heaven. I don't doubt his faith. Yet he sounds like he's put his faith in Christ, but you see this mess and this pain that a messed up theology will bring with it. You know, if we're carrying an umbrella in our hands and it works, 
we don't need to pray to God to keep the rain off our heads. If we've got a plate and food in front of us, we don't need to ask God for food. God works through many ways. He works through doctors. He works through nurses. Mr. Lieberger did not know whether or not Jesus was going to heal. He assumed he knew the hidden will of God. And it cost, in all likelihood, it cost his daughter her life. So what do I want to sum up with is this phrase, trust God's truth over feelings and experience. Trust God's truth over feelings and experience. It's very important that we have a strong faith and a strong theology. I want to close with this story. This comes from uh, C.S. Lewis's book called Beyond Personality. And in that book, he talks about a time he was giving a lecture to a group of Air Force uh, um, military personnel in the Royal Air Force. And he's telling them about God. In the middle of that lecture, this one kind of grisly old uh, Air Force major stands up and he says, I got no use for all that talk about God. But he said, mind you, I believe in God. He said, I felt him out there in the desert. And he says, and if you experience God, you don't need any talk about God. Now, Lewis said he could understand where the guy was coming from. And he explained it like this. He said, as you take a walk beside the Atlantic, you feel the spray of the ocean on your face. You smell the salt in the air. You hear the gawking of the seagulls. Then you go into your study and you look at a map of the Atlantic. And it's quite a letdown. It's certainly far more fun, far more interesting to walk beside the Atlantic than to substitute that for colored paper. But, Lewis said, there are a couple of things you need to know about that paper. One, it's based on the experiences of thousands of people and not just your own. And of people better qualified to analyze what they saw than you are. And secondly, if you want to get any place, the map is absolutely essential. In the same way that map helps navigate the ocean... Great faith with good theology will help you navigate life. Loving God with your heart and with your soul, but also loving God with your mind as well. And there's too much at stake not to do that. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, I pray that we would always rightly believe in you and rightly believe the truth about you and bring our feelings and experiences before you in your word. I pray, God, that we would never abandon right doctrine, that we would build what we do on right doctrine and truth about you. And God, I ask that we would be balanced Yes, that we would study. Yes, that we would seek the truth. And yes, we would also understand that we need a deep faith in you, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Help us to find that place. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.